Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. So those are the steps, the traditional Seder plate. And we know in in our generation, uh, people who are learning the Torah and keeping the Torah, sometimes if you say the word tradition or traditional, it, it creates some tension because they haven't quite yet worked out where they are in relation to a Jewish tradition. Uh, they might have some, some bad feelings about some traditions, maybe that the church taught them or another religion. If they came out of another religion, they, they might have some offense like, okay, you taught me these traditions, but it, it didn't lead me to the truth. And actually it did <laughs> indirectly, but you found the truth, right? It, it was a step. It was a step to get there. And the father's never surprised at where we're born and and to whom we're born. He knows who your parents are. He picked them. He picked you to be born to those parents in that place at that time. And so he doesn't make mistakes. So we, we come precariously close to complaining when we complain too hard about maybe the religious system that we came out of, when maybe that was where he planted us so that we could speak that language. So that those would be the very things we needed as an individual to bring us to the place where we are today. It's it's kind of like he said, you know, who is the the pottery to ask the potter, what are you doing? And so complaining too much about where we came from, I think is really right there on the edge of complaining to the potter about how he formed us and where he put that, that pot, where he placed that pot understanding that, like I say, a lot of you, if you're leading satyrs or um, if you're participating in a satyr, you realize that you're with a group that that might have a, a degree of offense against any kind of tradition, Jewish or otherwise, but sometimes especially Jewish tradition for some reason. I haven't quite figured that out. So if they look at a traditional satyr plate, especially if they're fairly new, they might look at that satyr plate and say, where's that in the Bible? Didn't you? Maybe the first time you saw a Seder plate and you saw one actually set up, you said, where's that in the Bible? Well, that's what the Haggadah does. It it takes you through these these symbols on the Seder plate, and it shows you how going through these steps that we see on, on page 19, it's a process, it's an order that will carry us through to make sure that we are covering the literal commandments of Passover. That even though it, it might be uh, dressed in tradition, maybe it might feel very Jewish to us, and maybe we don't even know any Jews where we live. Nevertheless, once we understand the the rationale behind these elements on the Seder plate, and maybe at what time in history they emerged and why, I think that takes a little bit of the mystery out of it. And um, it, it may not change the way that you do your Passover, but I think it will definitely make you, what would the word be, more malleable if you happen to be with a different group at Passover. Some of you may have gone to Israel with us at Passover. And so definitely, yes, you would do things in a, in a very Jewish way. I've been at other congregations that, that had a more 
I want to say stripped down, but a more elemental, uh, just a basic Seder because they did. They had a lot of babies who are just trying to see Messiah in it. You can't take people anywhere unless they can see Messiah in it first, right? But after you do that a few years, it's like, okay, it's a given. Messiah is in here. Can we can we move on <laughs> and find the the deeper revelations of Messiah that might be wearing Jewish clothes, you know, for dressing it up in this tradition. So looking at that Seder plate at the diagram there of the Seder plate, uh, of course, your, your matzah, they won't fit on the Seder plate unless you have a, a custom sort of Seder plate. You, you might have something called a matzatash, which is a, a decorative cloth that's going to have the 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 slots, the little compartments in it. But typically you can just get a large paper napkin and do the same thing. You can buy something fancy for yourself. You can beautify the commandment. But if if you have a lot of people, you may have to go with a big napkin and you can still make room there for uh, three boards of matzah. Or some of you might be using soft matzah. There is soft matzah available. I know we, we think of that that cardboard matzah as being what they carried out of Egypt, but most likely it was a soft matzah. It it probably didn't, you know, last 40 years like I think those matzah boards will. And that's what we want. We want durability, right? If we remove all that chametz, it's going to make us more durable. Just we're, we'll be a little dry. As we look at what's on the Seder plate itself, you've got your matzah sitting there to the side. And of course, as you, you set up your table, you want to think about things like, are you going to do hand washing, uh, which is going to be part of the, the order of the Seder? What rationale would you explain to new people if, if you are doing the hand washing? Well, again, he's bringing us out of the realm of sin and death. So the scripture tells us, purify your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hearts. Your hearts and your hands are seen as the thought starts in the heart and then it goes to your hands. So symbolically, you wash your hands. Right? And it has nothing to do with the argument that Yeshua had with the Pharisees over hand washing. And again, it's it's more ritualistic. It's not really to get your hands clean. Your hands should already be physically clean before the Seder. Uh, this is symbolic, again, of not just for us, the significance of cleansing yourself from sin and purifying your hands. But again, we're we're taking elements of the temple service. The temple was destroyed. And so what are we doing now as a royal priesthood? We're taking that pattern and that principle. And if we're going to be partaking of the Passover, then we want to purify our hands like a priest would. And then if as we look at what's on the plate itself, you're going to have maror, which is typically horseradish. We've all been through lots of adventures with the horseradish, I'm sure. Uh, then you've got the chatzeret, chatzeret. Typically, that's going to be a romaine lettuce. It might be something else. Different cultures might use something else there. Then you're going to have the charoset. And some people say, where's the charoset in the Bible? Well, we'll take a look at that. When did that develop? What does it actually mean? It's supposed to have, once you kind of mush it up, it's supposed to have the appearance of the mortar that the Hebrews had to use when when they assembled the bricks for the Egyptians. Uh, the zaroa can be some sort of roasted bone that's going to represent the Passover sacrifice. And then the troublesome thing on the plate is typically going to be the egg, the beitza, 
right? They, they look at the egg and they say, oh, no, I just came out of idolatry. I'm not going back to Ishtar, right? <laughs> so we're going to take a look at where did that egg come from? Why is that on the plate? And does it have anything to do with Ishtar? The, the answer is going to be no there. And the book here simplifies it as a symbol of mourning and the, the second sacrifice, but it's deeper than that. And it's older than that, because these things would have come to the forefront after the destruction of the temple. Our question is, was the egg on the plate before this destruction of the temple? And why? What was its function? And so we'll take a look at that. Uh, and then karpas, it's going to be some sort of vegetable. And this is what you're going to dip in the salt water. So one of the things you have to do typically to get ready for your Seder is to boil some, some water and pour some salt in it to get it ready. So it'll dissolve on you. And then you can put little dishes around on the table. So when it's time to dip the parsley or celery or whatever you're using in the salt water, that'll be, it'll be close at hand. And you don't need a lot of it because you only do that one time. But of course, the salt water is going to represent the bitter tears that were wept in Egypt. And that's, you know, one way of remembering those scriptures. All right. So last night we did the candle blessing. Again, just kind of a recap of what's in the book on the the image there of the, the Seder plate. I've noticed sometimes I get pressed into service to help do the Seder plates because I can read the Hebrew and some of the Seder plates only have Hebrew on them. It wouldn't hurt probably to, if you you can, you know, your Aleph bait, then maybe go ahead and memorize these words and, and what they actually are. So you can also be recruited into service to help build the Seder plates. And so one thing going forward, I wanted to remind you, and I know a lot of you have read the, the Becky book, Truth, Tradition, or Tear, because we look at some things like this. How much of Jewish tradition is okay? Is any Jewish tradition okay? Is any tradition at all okay? And so I wrote that book to help us work through that. Yeshua gave us a pattern. He didn't tear down every tradition. He upheld some of it. But what he did teach us is how to weight it to give it the proper weight. It's a, a principle called uh, or light and heavy. And, and it's, a, it's a rabbinic method of working through what is the more important commandment and should I be elevating this over this? And then what if a tradition factors in? What if it's not two competing commandments like say resting on the Shabbat versus offering sacrifices in the temple? Well, one has to have precedence over the other so they can offer the sacrifices. And it's not breaking Shabbat in that case where you, you let the weight of your commandment prevail. What about tradition? Well, what Yeshua taught us is a tradition is never as heavy as a commandment. And even to this day, you know, when, when we study with an Orthodox rabbi, uh, we went through the, the laws of Shabbat, which is a huge book. And one thing that, that he reiterated over and over, because we were learning the traditions too. He said the the tradition, the fence, the rabbinic fence is there to prevent you from breaking the commandment. It's to slow you down. And if you have to choose, break the fence, just don't break the commandment. So there, there's, we get the sense somehow that in Judaism, the, the fence is elevated to, to the level of the Torah itself. That's what not what I've personally heard. But again, there's a diversity of, of teachers, opinions, rabbis, and so forth. But the, the message I get is we're under no illusion that a tradition is as weighty as a commandment, but we do use it. We do put it in place 
to prevent you from breaking the commandment itself. And, you know, the illustration I've used before is if, if you fly into Lexington, you're flying right into the heart of Calumet Farms, one of the oldest, most famous racehorse barns, farms uh, in the United States, rich heritage there. And so because the airport is right smack dab in the middle of that, that farm, what you'll notice is as you're flying in, looking down, or even as you pull out in your car, is that the, the, there's two fences around the pastures. There's double fences. When you say, why is there a double fence there? Well, those colts in those fields will sell for tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars at the yearling sale across the street. <laughs> we don't want them in the street before they sell, because should they break down one fence, which is common for horses, uh, I know that from experience, then there's still one more fence before they run out into the highway and get nailed by cars going 60 or 70 miles an hour. And that's a little bit of the rationale behind the rabbinic fences. They put a fence up around the commandment so that should you, you know, have a scuffle or, you know, something is not exactly right, if you were to break through the rabbinic fence, you could still stop short of breaking a commandment, right? So that's one example. Here's the other one that I used in truth, tradition, or tear. We start from the seed. The seed is the word. And when we first get into Torah, that's all we want is the seed. We just want to learn what the Torah says. Don't give me any of this tradition. You know, don't add any extra stuff. I just want to learn the Torah. I don't want to make any more mistakes. And of course, we have no idea at that time how many mistakes we will make because we're learning. That's the whole point. We will do and we will hear. Here is a matter of learning and understanding in order to do. But at, at the beginning, we think, well, there's only the seed. Well, here's the problem with the seed. I've got two flats of seedlings out on my front porch right now, trying to get them hardened off before we put them in the garden. There's probably three or four sections in those flats of various plants. I think one's squash, one's watermelon, and maybe there's a tomato. And out of the seeds that I put in there, none of those germinated. Now, I'm looking at, you only notice that because everything else did. I'm like, okay, I've got three or four here that just didn't germinate at all, even though there's more than one seed in that little carton. Why did they not germinate? Well, the seed is still there. It's kind of rotting, actually, <laughs> at this point, probably, because it didn't germinate. What we want is germination from the word. We want the seed to sprout, and then we'll begin to observe something. And so I've got lots of plants out there where I can see the form of the plant. I can see the promise of the plant. They don't have fruits on them yet. They may not have blossoms on them yet, but after I transplant them, after some days pass, some sunshine, the temperature changes, after they feed, then eventually toward the end of summer, I'm going to start to see some fruit from the seeds that I planted. And we need to look at Yeshua's parable of the seed word the same way. Let's look at the seeds. In the Torah, literally, it's matzah maror and the lamb. So we, we can't do the lamb anymore because we don't have a temple, we don't have a functioning priesthood, and we're not in Jerusalem, which is a requirement for sacrificing a lamb. And that pretty much leaves us with matzah and maror, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Could you technically say you kept Passover if all you did was have matzah and maror? Sure, absolutely. Those are the seeds of the word. But we wanted to start germinating. And so when we look at the Seder, it's giving form. It's giving the order 
to make sure that we don't just tick off a couple of boxes called matzah and marur, but we read the whole body of scripture as it relates to Passover. And we, we get the, the messages that are embedded in that greater body of scripture dealing with Passover so that by observing that, eventually we'll see the fruit of it. We'll have a new generation of faith. So a lot of the things that are done in the Seder are done for the benefit of the children, of the retelling of the Exodus for the benefit of the children, so that literally our fruits will begin to internalize that message. When you see traditions, what you have to ask yourself, is this growing out of the seed or is it growing out of a tear? If you know it came from the realm of idolatry, if, if that was the seed that gave birth to it, then you don't, definitely you don't want that tradition. But what if you go back and you say, wait a minute, the seed of this tradition is in the word. This tradition is leading me back to the seed. And this tradition, its purpose is to produce a fruit, a benefit, either for the individual or the community. Now you've got Yeshua's pattern. Now you understand what he's telling us about tradition. Now you understand why Paul was passing traditions, Jewish traditions, onto his congregations twice. He mentions that he passed on the traditions. He didn't leave us a list. But it's pretty evident to me that he taught them a lot about Passover because much of Jewish thought about Passover, he does pass on, especially to the Corinthians. Apparently, they, they didn't listen too well the first time he taught it. All right. So we uh, we went over all this stuff right here about the shank bone of the lamb. And of course, if you were offering the, the actual lamb, then the body was not supposed to be broken. And zerua, actually, it means arm. And you see the arm of the Lord frequently in scripture. And we've talked about that in class, how the hand represents a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled in the immediate future or the near future. But the arm of Adonai is prophecy that will be fulfilled in time's future. It's a long-term prophecy. So when we look at this shank bone on the Seder plate, it's, it's more than just a symbol to remind us of the lamb of the Passover in Egypt. It's even more to remind us of the unbroken body of Yeshua. And it's even more as an arm to remind us that there will be a Passover in the future. And I think that's what we're doing here with this study. We're talking about this Passover of the future that the book of Revelation is prophesying, where we are seeing the arm of the Lord. We're seeing the long-term prophecy of Passover fulfilled simply because Revelation is so many bullet points of Exodus. And originally, the, the lamb is going to be the the most important part of the feast. You couldn't eat it raw, you couldn't eat it boiled, but you had to eat it basically roasted in fire. And some of you, you know, you've seen pictures of how that was done and the Samaritans still do it. And see, and we all know about, you know, Yeshua's body wasn't broken on the cross. We've got the matzot representing the bread of affliction. And by removing the bread that has the chametz, it represents removing sin, malice, pride, envy, all hosts of sins. It's to be replaced with sincerity and truth, right? So why did they choose three pieces of matzah? Well, there's all kinds of theories. Uh, if you start researching, you will find all kinds of theories about those three pieces. But we know that, that the common practice with those three pieces is that during the Seder, the middle matzah will be broken. It'll be wrapped in linen and it will be hidden 
it will be hidden, which makes us think of the hidden manna. Uh, I think we can link this to Yeshua saying that the broken matzah represented his body. So even though his bones were not broken, his body was broken. What does that mean? His body was broken away from his soul and his spirit. He commended his spirit into the hands of the father. His soul descended to Sheol, where he took the keys, but his body was hidden in a burial tomb. And so it's a, it's a separation. It's a breaking of the, the, the whole body in terms of spirit, soul, and body. And then, of course, that body is, is put back together. It's resurrected, right? So the, the hidden manna, as we look at that in the book of Revelation, it can allude to some different things that we know about. If it's the hidden manna, it, it can um, reference having a greater intimacy with the word itself because the word is Yeshua. Yeshua said he is the manna from heaven. He is the bread of heaven. So it goes back to who knows him. Knowing him is a matter of intimacy. It's the Ruach Da'at, the sixth spirit. And there's an interesting custom when they would take in some of the Middle Eastern countries, uh, which maybe have an older tradition, possibly more in line with what would have happened in the first century, when they would take the middle matzah out, and of course they're using a soft matzah, the, the leader of the Seder would tear that afikoman, that middle matzah, he would tear it into the shape of a Hebrew letter dalet and vav. Vav is a nail, a connector, but it also has the the gematria six. It has a value of six to it. Six, the sixth spirit is the the ruach da'at, or the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of intimacy. And of course, the dalit is going to be associated with the door. You put the, the blood on the door post. The value of dalit is four. And of course, the fourth position represents spiritual authority. It's the axis of the Ruach Aronai. So he's he's tearing off two pieces of matzah in the shape of a Dalit, the door, the, the symbol of spiritual authority, and the Vav, or the sixth, not just the nail, but the connector, the intimacy that we were created to have with the Holy One. Now, you, you wouldn't be able to do it unless you had the soft matzah. What other hidden manna do we know about? Well, there was manna hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, and there was the double portion that miraculously appeared as they ground the Omer on preparation day, which again is day six. So that that vav has some significance there for sure. This passage right here is, is just a reminder of how we can get messed up with the manna. As the Israelites go into the the wilderness and they start to get a little hungry and thirsty, they start to complain. And they started complaining about the manna. Well, they they didn't have that intimacy with the manna. They didn't have that intimacy with the bread of, of heaven because they start complaining. And it's like complaining about the word itself. It's about complaining about the words of Adonai himself. It's about complaining about Yeshua himself because they start to see this food as death. This heavenly food they see now as death. And they look back to Egypt where they had leeks and onions and melons and fish. And all of a sudden, the dragon back in Egypt they see as life. 
And it's very similar to the the way that hearing the commandments at Sinai, it was killing them because there's a part of your soul that's going to strive. The Esau part of you is going to strive against the spirit of the word. And that's what's happening here, that as Esau is being purged out of them in the wilderness, they get things backward. They're being nourished from above. They're being nourished with the very bread of heaven, but they think that very word is killing them. And so they twist it around and they ask Moses in Exodus 14, 12, they say, is this not the word? And see, instead of the word of heaven, they say, we had the word. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And that still goes on today. You know, how many people they have tasted the word, they have gone a ways out into the wilderness, they found the Torah, and then all of a sudden they realize the Torah at times is going to feel like it's killing you. And it's not killing you. It's just making you feel as though you're dying because Esau is dying. He's screaming appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. He's disciplining those. He's not killing us. It's just a feeling that we're dying. You know, if you think of of somebody who's addicted to heroin, as they go through the withdrawals, as you know, as they're they're trying to clean up, they're going through withdrawals, they're going to feel like they're way deader than they were on heroin before they feel better. And that's kind of the process that we're going through in the spirit. The spirit is disciplining our souls and it's making our souls feel like they're dying, but that's just backward. And we have to take the word on faith that the way we're feeling is backward from the actual truth. Another passage, we can go back and find it. It's in the Rashi commentary, of course, in Exodus, where the the passage is explaining how the, the man is to be gathered, how it's to be prepared, how they're they're not supposed to pick it up on Shabbat, that there's going to be extra on Friday morning. But there's there's more than one explanation in scripture. It one seems fairly straightforward, but then we read another passage. And as we read the text of the passage in Hebrew, the implication there is they weren't picking up extra. They were simply picking up the same Omer that they always picked up. But as they prepared it, and that's the phrase, when they prepare, there's going to be a miracle. It's not going to be something you do by gathering double. It's going to be something he does that he doubles what you prepared, that it became a double portion as they prepared it. So it it required them to take a step of faith. I'm just going to pick up one Omer. I'm not going to pick up two. And by by obeying that, by picking up one, as they prepared it, as they ground it, as they baked it, whatever they were doing, miraculously, it would become double. And so this was, it's kind of seen as a hidden miracle of the Torah. It's, it's not that apparent maybe when we read it in English, but it is a, an account of hidden manna. And we see that pattern in scripture, you know, with the oil, start pouring the oil and all of a sudden the oil just doesn't stop flowing until they run out of pottery to hold it. A jar, a flour won't run out. These are seen, this is seen as kind of the archetype of those special miracles. The, the loaves and the fishes, you bring what you have. And in the case of the loaves and fishes, way more than double. But it was like when they prepare, take a step of faith. All right, disciples, we're gonna we're gonna make a blessing, and then you just start passing out food. Had they just stood there and stared at the loaves and fishes, I don't think anything would have happened. But when they pick up the basket and just start moving, that's when the miracle occurs, and that's the message to us. For those who are going to eat of the hidden manna, it has to be those who take steps of faith based on the word. The daily manna was also a miracle because even if you didn't have enough, it says everyone still ate until they were full. 
that was a miracle. So there was a hidden measure of manna that, that you couldn't even measure in the natural realm. It's just like in your stomach, it made you full. And uh, that would have been daily. But, you know, the, the, the one that's really seen more as the hidden manna miracle is going to be that as you prepare your, your manna on the sixth day, it will double. And it, it has to do it. And it's tied to, again, tell them not to go out and gather on Shabbats. There's, they're having to exercise faith in order for either one of these hidden miracles to happen. You can't go out there and gather on Shabbat. You have to believe that when you open up that pottery, or I don't think they had saran wrap, or I don't know how they kept their food, but uh, most likely in pottery, then when you open that pot at lunchtime, you have to believe it's going to be in there. When you limit yourself to just picking up the Omer and say, you know what, he's going to do the miracle as I prepare it. It's a test. It's a Shabbat test. So the the miracle of hidden manna frequently we can say is going to be tied to a Shabbat test. And if you pass the Shabbat test, that's how you find or experience the hidden manna. And here's an interesting passage. It's Exodus 16, 32 through 36. Uh, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aharon, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And so he does that. But what you can see right here is even though it's kept in a hidden place, he says that they may see, the Israelites themselves, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness. Well, if it's hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, then how can they see it? Well, there again, it's a matter of faith. Can you see the bread? It's a remembrance. What is Shabbat? It's a remembrance. It's a commemoration of something. And the, the reason that you keep Shabbat today is for that very reason. You, re, you are remembering a commandment. You are remembering an instruction from the creation. And so even though you weren't there at the creation, every Shabbat you see it. Just like the Israelites, if they had faith, they could see the bread in the wilderness. If you have faith, you can see Yeshua as the bread in the wilderness throughout your generations. There's no generation this hidden manna has been withheld from. It's a matter of faith. And it says they ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And it says now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. And again, this we were talking last night about the 10 pieces of bread that you're going to hide on purpose the night before Pesach. Uh, to go through the the, the traditional search where you're, you're going to have a light, some sort of a candle, might be a flashlight, where you can see into the dark places. Remember the parable of the woman who lost her coins and she sweeps the house and she takes a, a lamp. I think that's the right one. And she's looking in all the dark places because it's too valuable. Well, this is kind of like flip that parable around. We're looking to find anything that might be hiding that is going to be detrimental to our household. Sin, malice, envy, greed, slander, gossip, all that stuff. We want to search those dark corners. And so when they're told last night that, you know, you're going to be tested for 10 days, you're going to be thrown into prison, and you're going to be tested for 10 days. Again, this Omer of manna is like a test. It's not just food, it's a test. The the great miracles of the manna were not that they ate it. To me, the great miracles of the manna is that they had to believe in the miracle, that they, they had to gather one per day per person. 
that they would believe that the manna would double as they prepared it, that they had to believe they weren't supposed to go out and try to gather on the Shabbat. And so to this day, nothing has changed about that. An Omer is still a tenth of an Ephah, and 10 can be a number of testing. The number of plagues were 10, right? So in gathering an Omer is a test. We're counting the Omer right now from Pesach to Shavuot. We're in a testing period right now. Will you have faith? Will you continue this journey towards Sinai, where he will take you to a, a deeper understanding of his word? So not only is 10 the number of a minion, the, the, the minimum number of a prayer group, but that 10 is going to represent the power of that minion to stand between something that deserves judgment, punishment, and sparing. Just like Abraham bargained, you know, he if there's just 10 left, you know, uh, there were 10 spies that didn't want to go into the land. Well, they became an evil congregation. They became an evil minion. And then there was punishment. Uh, 10 against 2. Right? So when we, we think of the word, there will be a testing associated with the word. Uh, in a simple sense, and like I say, we'll unpack this more a little bit later. But this second, this roasted egg is a reminder of the second burnt offering that was brought to the temple at Passover um, and the other Chagim. Remember, uh, we've talked about the Musaf offering, that on feast days, there were extra offerings that were brought. And again, after the destruction of the temple, the Seder is going to grow because they start to pull some of the, the remembrances, some of the commandments out of the temple setting and bring it into the, the home, into the Seder setting. Uh, some sources will also say it's a symbol of mourning for the loss of the temple where the, the festival offerings were offered, uh, but there's going to be differing opinions on that. Um, but from the the documents we have that we can research and, and learn from, it says even when the temple stood, they would use two dishes. And at that time, there wouldn't have been any need to remember the temple. Why, why would, how did that change? Well, again, as the history changed, what it symbolized changed too. There, there wasn't so much symbolism with the egg and uh, at the time that the temple would have stood, like, why is there an egg? We're going to look at what they were using it for. And it, it wasn't that symbolic other than the fact it was a rich food. Um, remember at Passover, you're supposed to be like a rich person. That's why you recline. You, you once were a slave in Egypt and now you're a rich person. Uh, you're royalty. You're a, a royal priesthood. And so not everybody was that rich. And as we look into the literature, we'll realize what was going on. Even for a poor family, they wanted to have certain foods on the table for Passover, for the festival, that would have been considered the food of a rich person. And that's what the egg was being used for at that time. And it, it became a kind of an appetizer. Um, but it, it did count 
as a rich man's food. And, and that's the symbolism that it's going to have. It has nothing to do with Easter eggs. Um, let's see. Yes, appetizer. And again, it, it could have also, like we say, transition after the temple is destroyed. Because it was a tradition to eat a hard-boiled egg after a funeral, then it would have been very easy for what was already on the table to take on that symbolism of the loss of the temple. Um, so um, I say the, the Passover ritual the, at the original Exodus, it involved blood, hyssop, wood. And so the teaching aspect of the egg could be tied you know, to the, the Torah, kind of threading together the, the concepts of the mourner, uh, the Metzorah, and Pesach. Because what the, the Metzorah, the, the leper, the cleansed leper is the Metzorah. He's undergoing this ritual with the, the blood, the hyssop, and the wood, which is just a replay of Passover. It's like he's getting saved all over again. Uh, once he's cleansed, he's he's having a rebirth, so to speak. It's like, he's like he's having his own little miniature exodus again, and so that um, that it that could be that theme that's running through there, uh, that resurrection from the dead in that sense. All right, not in the the sense of a Easter egg. Okay, I went ahead and put it in here. I thought it was later. Yeshua mentions this idea of the egg being considered a rich food, uh, a desirable food that you would want to serve at the Passover. Remember, they didn't have a they didn't have a Safeway, they didn't have a a Super Walmart, they didn't have a K Rogers. Uh, it was a little harder for them to assemble a meal in that day and time. So in Luke eleven eleven. Yeshua is teaching, and he says, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Will he not give him, will he, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give to the Holy Spirit to those Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? All right, so what's the context here? Yeshua is using how fathers and sons interact. And the purpose of the Seder is to teach your children. And so Yeshua is referring to a practice that was existent at that time in the first century even before the destruction of the temple. And, and we find this back in the discussions of the rabbis of that period where they're saying, you know, yes, we're supposed to be a royal uh, nation on Passover night. That's why we recline on pillows and, and we're free people. Uh, so two of the items that were con, you know, categorized in the rich category were going to be fish. And an egg. Now, were these the richest of the rich? No, these were actually the, the poorest of the rich in their estimation because they were looking at what is the cost 
what does it cost the average family to have this festival meal? Well, many of them were poor. They couldn't afford chickens. Uh, because remember the lamb, they're only going to eat about an olive's worth of the, the sacrifice lamb itself. It, it's not there to, to fill you up like a meal. It's It has a more symbolic use to it. So you're not going to fill up on lamb chops. You're going to have a bite of it because about 50 people would share the lamb. But you're going to have other rich foods to celebrate the feast. You might have chicken. You might have beef if you're really wealthy. You might have goat. Uh, but the poorer families could not afford those. What they could afford typically was fish and eggs. And so they said, you know what? If all they have on the table is a fish smeared with egg, that's still considered the meal of a rich person. That's that's still celebrating the, the joy of Passover. And so Yeshua is using these two, you know, these very same two foods that are under discussion by the rabbis, like, well, what, what about a poor family? What would be the minimum? And so if they couldn't even afford this fish and an egg, then it was supposed to be supplied out of the charity box by the local synagogue to make sure they had at least fish, an egg for everybody, and enough wine uh, for the four cups, for each person to drink the four cups. And they even have uh, rules on like how much can the wine be diluted? If they're really, really poor, can they dilute the wine a little bit to stretch it over four cups? And the answer is yes. So all of this was under discussion. And as Yeshua's teaching here in Luke, to the ears of his listeners, there's they can associate this with Passover. Right? So it, it never had any tie to um, Nowruz, which is the Babylonian New Year. Um, these were official alternative rich foods. And if the family couldn't even afford these, then the, their neighbors had to make sure they had to supply this out of the charity box um, to make sure every single family had the, the matzah, the marur, uh, four cups of wine, and at least fish and an egg for their meal. Right? And, and that would be very healthy, even though it was the least expensive of the rich foods, it would still be a very healthy, you know, protein-filled meal. And protein was something they had, you know, a little more difficulty accessing in that day and time because they didn't have refrigerators. They couldn't you know, butcher a cow and then stick it in the freezer. Um, if you ate meat, it was likely fairly recently slaughtered just because of um, preservation issues. And fish was a, a protein they could preserve. They would salt it. Uh, Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from, that was a big area where they were known for uh, not just catching fish there in the Galilee, but preserving it, right? So that's good. We're clearing up the egg right here. Uh, and so for, for people who are looking at the egg on the Seder plate and they're seeing an Easter egg, 
I don't know how you can go through all this with them because I had to do a lot of reading to pull this out. Um, it, it might have to be something that maybe you do have to take the egg off the plate for a few years. If <laughs> I hate to use the word trigger because I'm so sick of people being triggered. I'm like, nobody triggered you. You triggered yourself. Uh, but, you know, for people who can't see past that, maybe take the egg off until the, the passion uh, of what they think they know subsides and, and you can actually explain with some logic and reason where this came from. Um, but it all goes back to what came first, the chicken or the egg. Every single symbol that we read about in scripture has at one time or another been appropriated by pagan religions. It doesn't matter if we're talking about eggs, trees, stars, um, but go back to the creation itself. Was it a pagan symbol in the days of creation? Uh, Yeshua died on a tree, right? I don't consider a cross a pagan symbol. You know, has it been used by pagans? Sure. But when Christians use it, I don't think that's what they're thinking of. Uh, when you see a Star of David, is that a, a pagan symbol? Well, it's been used by pagans, but, you know, from ancient times, the children of Abraham have been seen as the stars. Eggs are just a rich food. So we have to be sure that when we assign meaning to a symbol, that the people who are using it are also assigning the same meaning. Right? I know if, if you can trace it back and say, hey, you know, um, this, this egg on the plate, we know it's an Easter egg. That would be different if you knew that for sure. But simply because many cultures use eggs, <laughs> doesn't mean the egg on the Seder plate has the same meaning or symbolism as what pagans are using them for. Let's go on to the marur. You got, you're going to have two bitter herbs simply because in Exodus 12, 18, it's in plural. So in addition to typically horseradish, but it can be anything bitter, typically what you'll see is chaseret, which is uh, lettuce. Um, and that's just to make it plural. If you can find something else that's bitter, as long as you have two bitter things on the plate, then you fulfilled the literal commandment itself. Right. Um, and it's supposed to remind you again of the bitterness and the suffering of slavery in Egypt. But again, going back to our seven assemblies, Smyrna, of course, it's Greek, but it it, it transcends, you know, Hebrew, Greek, it's the same thing. It means uh, bitterness, just like maror. So remember, you eat your unleavened bread. Your matzah, you eat it with marur. Well, what does Smyrna represent? The days of unleavened bread. As, as we assigned last night, our seven assemblies, we can assign uh, a feast to each one because they, they each have the, the themes and the earmarks of that particular feast. Smyrna, it's going to have the, the literal like 
Yes, this is the bitterness. This is the maror of Passover. Yes, we eat this during the days of unleavened bread, matzah and maror. Um, Thyatira, the fourth um, assembly. It means odor of affliction. Right? And it's understood that until Shavuot, which we assign to Thyatira because it's, it's the fourth feast right here. As, let's say we're moving this way. I don't think it matters which way you go. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits of the barley, and then Shavuot. Well, your Passover season, because these two are connected. You, you have to start, you have to connect your counting with the first fruits of the barley to Shavuot, because you're not even given a date for Shavuot. It has to begin, you know, based on when you're celebrating back here at Passover. So these, they're connected. Right? So odor of affliction, what are you eating? You're eating the bread of affliction with Smyrna. So it's uh, connected right here. And this is going to be the conclusion of Pesach at Shavuot. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, Go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.